right, I'm just going to say a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord, Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you and through you be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's great to be here. I had no idea there were going to be this many people here. So I, like, I brought some resources with me. There's like 10 books. Um, but I am Father Sean Kilcully, and I'm the Family Life Office Director. Um, and tonight I'm going to talk about conversion, family life, and theology of the body. And so it's going to be a little bit of my conversion story myself, um, a little bit of theology of marriage, like what do we believe about marriage and family life, and, um, and try to weave in, you know, also some of the concerns about the culture that we kind of live in, right? Because we're really called to be a light in the darkness. You know, when we say be a light in the darkness, when I was growing up, it was like, oh, that sounds like a really like nice, pious thought from scripture. Um, today, like those words are actually true. Like they're actually real. Um, when we look at the world around us and what the world says about the family or what the world says about marriage or what the world says about love, what we believe is so much more beautiful than that. And we have a responsibility to be a witness to that beauty and to let the light of Christ radiate from our lives. But that's not just something that I've always known in my own priesthood, and so we'll talk a little bit about how I got there too. Um, So a little bit about myself. I am uh, from Michigan originally. Um, My vocation story starts with the story of my parents, like all of our vocation stories do. So my dad grew up in Ireland and... When he was 19 years old, he went to this dance and he met a girl and fell in love, as young men are wont to do. Um, They got married and had three children, my sister Donna, my sister Jacqueline. And uh, when my dad was 22, he then moved to the United States to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my brother Mark was born in Tulsa. His wife came over shortly thereafter. And when Mark was about two years old, they got divorced. And my dad really just abandoned that family. Um, moved around, lived in Memphis, lived in New Orleans, met some people who just happened to be going to Michigan to work in the automobile factories, and he thought, well, sounds like a good idea, went with them. Meanwhile, my mom grew up in Michigan. When she was 16 years old, she fell in love and got married. Um, Her and her husband had two sons, my brothers James and John. When John was about two years old, they got divorced. So dad made it to Michigan in time to meet my mom, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> they both got annulments, married in the church. I was baptized in the church, all of that. Two weeks shy of my second birthday, my mom died of cancer. That's when everybody goes, oh. <laughs> So about a year later, within a year, my dad remarried a third time, my stepmom. They had two daughters and a son, my sisters Sarah, Katie, and Kevin. When I was a sophomore in college, they got divorced. That's how I became the Family Life Office Director. (laughs) It is the family that my vocation was born in, though. Um, A lot of times people think, oh, if you're a priest, you must have came from this perfect Catholic family. You know, you came out of the womb saying, hallelujah. (laughs) 
Um, I never played mass as a child. I never did anything. But, uh, but I did start to pray when I was young. And I started to pray Psalm 139 before I knew it existed. You know, Psalm 139 says, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. Or I praise you for I'm wonderfully made. Because as a child, I used to just be in wonder and awe of the fact that God had to take my dad from another country, across an ocean, through all these circumstances, in order to unite him with my mom so that I could be born in time before she died. And if he went through all that trouble to make me, he must have a plan for me. And, and so I really used to marvel at that. Um, so I started thinking about being a priest, actually, when I was about seven. And my main motivation uh, was really because I wanted to meet this person that gave birth to me. So I remember kind of laying in bed reading this children's Bible, and, uh, and I kind of had this syllogism in my head. It went sort of like, I want to meet my mom and know what she was like. My mom's in heaven. I, therefore, I have to get to heaven. Therefore, I better become a priest because that will guarantee I go to heaven. <laughs> Right? That's the logic. <laughs> then I got older. Um, it did plant the seed of my vocation that way, though. And when I got into high school, I got very involved with my youth ministry at my parish. I sort of came to know Christ in a more personal way. And, um, and I'd asked a lot of questions about going to the seminary. And the answers I got were all pretty much the same. They were, you can wait. You know, you can wait. You're young, go to college first, then come back in. And if you still want to become a priest after college, come back in, then we'll see about it. So I just had to wait. Um, after high school, I got accepted at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, went there, majored in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. Graduated in 1996, became an infantry officer in the Army. Went to Fort Benning, learned how to jump out of planes, became an Army Ranger. Uh, went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, had the best three, top three lieutenant jobs you can have. My career was all soaring, and my heart was pretty broken. Because um, I was running away from God a lot at that time. It was like this ringing in my ear, like, you're supposed to be a priest. And then this government saying, you have to serve for five years first. So to drown out that voice, I just kind of ran away from God. And there were days when I would wake up and look at myself in the mirror, and I would be like, who are you? Like, you used to be this guy who wanted to be a priest. I don't even know who I am anymore. And I went on a long drive and um, down to see my brother Mark in Florida. And I was driving back, and I remember just very distinctly saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And hearing his voice in my head saying, I want you to be a priest, stupid. <laughs> And I drove straight to the parish and went to the Marian Shrine, prayed the rosary. I was like, Lord, if you want this, you have to make it happen because I, I can't keep going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Three days later, my chaplain was walking by my office and I said, Chaplain, do you know any way I could get out of the army to become a military chaplain? And he said, oh, the priest recruiter is going to be here on Friday. It just happened to be that week. Came in from a field exercise, went and met this guy, and he was like, Come by my office on Saturday. I'll give you all the paperwork you need to get out of the Army early. So then I got all this paperwork, and I was like, crap. <laughs> um, started to fill it out. 
And then a friend of mine introduced me to his spiritual director, and his spiritual director happened to be roommates with Monsignor Thorburn in the seminary at Mount St. Mary's. And, uh, and this priest, he, he's kind of, uh, kind of assertive, you know, like authoritative. And I remember him sitting down with me, and he's like, what does God want for you? I think he wants me to be a priest. Good, so do I. <laughs> that means he does. Because I'm your spiritual director, and my will is God's will. Um, and then he says to me, where do you want to be a priest? And I was like, I don't know. I'll probably go back to Michigan. And he just goes, Michigan. I don't know Michigan. <laughs> you should go to Lincoln. I'm thinking in my head all the places he should go. Right? <laughs> so I thought Lincoln was a f- cornfield with a football stadium. <laughs> a football stadium in the center. Um, so I came out here to appease him, really, and it just seemed like home. I can't really describe it any other way. And there were a lot of confirmations our Lord gave me that this is where I was supposed to be. So I entered the seminary in 99, ordained in 2005, spent four years in parish work, then went to Rome to study marriage and family. Um, never went to chaplain corps. Uh, I didn't. I went to Bishop Bruskowitz, and I said, it's time for me to go back in the army. And he was like, oh, you'd be great, you'd be great, but... Because bishops always have a but. <laughs> but I also know you're very passionate about marriage preparation, theology of the body, these things. And I think you should go to study in graduate school and come back and take over the family life office. So, um, so he left the choice up to me. Like, you can do whatever you want. Remember, you made a vow of obedience. You can do whatever you want, but I think you should go to graduate school. And, um, and I did. And it was the greatest thing our Lord ever could have done in my life. And in many ways, it saved my priesthood when I was there. You went where? Um, to the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Rome. Um, so now I came back, and now I get to fight this war, right? yes. this culture war about marriage. Um, and so in that context of the culture war about marriage, one of the questions we should ask is, like, what would John Paul II say if he was living right now? Right? Like, what would he say if he was living right now? And he did actually tell us that on April 2nd, 1980. He said, I think that among the answers that Christ would give to the people of our times and to their questions, often so impatient, isn't that true? Fundamental would still be the one he gave to the Pharisees. In answering these questions, Christ would appeal, first of all, to the beginning He would perhaps do so all the more decidedly and essentially inasmuch as man's inner and simultaneously cultural situation seems to move away from that beginning and assume forms and dimensions that diverge from the biblical image of the beginning to points that are evidently ever more distant. The theology of the body was five years worth of Wednesday audiences about marriage, about love, about human sexuality. And in those audiences, John Paul II starts with the Pharisees' question to Jesus about divorce. And he points out that when the Pharisees go to Jesus and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, he says, Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and marries another, commits adultery. And so Jesus points back to from the beginning. From the beginning, God made them male and female. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one body. 
So he doesn't answer the question about divorce. He doesn't say, well, sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not okay. Well, no, it's never okay, but you could get an annulment. Well, like, he doesn't say any of that. He says, from the beginning, it was not so. So if somebody were to go to Jesus and they were to say, what do you think about a man who interiorly thinks he's a woman? He would say, from the beginning, it was not so. And then go back and talk about how God created us. If somebody were to go to Jesus and ask him about same-sex unions, he would say, from the beginning, it was not so. And then go back and talk about God, how God created us. You know, and there's something fundamental about that. And so I'm going to review what the beginning means. Right. In Redemptor Hominis 10, which is the first thing John Paul II ever wrote, he says, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Right? Our vocation is a vocation to love. What really matters is love. And we all know that. There's songs about it. Right? There are songs about it. There are Disney movies about it. <laughs> this is why our kids are so enthralled with Disney princess movies, because they're about love. It's <coughs> why we watch romantic comedies. <laughs> because love is the most essential thing. You know, it's the most essential thing. And in a world of consumerism and everything else that's going on, like, we have to remember that love is still the most essential thing. You know, how many people do we know personally who have many material things and they're miserable? Or couples who have many material things, but they're lonely with each other. You know, like love is the most essential thing about our vocations. And there's this great love story that John Paul II tells in the Theology of the Body. And when he tells it, he follows the history of salvation. Right? And so he walks us from the time of creation until the end of time. Right? The entire book of scripture is the love story. Right? And the love story can be told in about like 15 seconds. Right? God created the world and everything was good. Then something happened in the world called original sin. And things became... Rose took my class. <laughs> things became distorted, Right? I'm not going to say that it became bad, but distorted. Distorted means that you can still tell what it is. It's just not clear. Right? When I was growing up, we had an antenna on the roof of our house. And we had to point it towards the TV signal. And every time the Detroit Lions got blacked out, we had to crank it around to Kalamazoo, Michigan. And we just got a fuzzy screen with guys running back and forth. And we knew we were watching football, but it just wasn't clear. Right? It became distorted. So the family here was a mother, a father, and their natural children. Okay, the family here is the family of Israel. Okay, the family of Israel is the family of Jacob. Jacob once fell in love with a woman, and he was so in love with her, he wanted to marry her. He went to her father and said, can I marry your daughter? The father said, yes, go to that tent to consummate the marriage. He went to the tent, consummated the marriage, woke up the next morning, shock and horror, <laughs> wrong sister. <laughs> right? He got tricked into marrying her uglier, older sister, Leah. And then he goes back to the father, and the father says, wait another seven years, you can marry the woman you love. Finally, he gets to marry Rachel, but she can't have babies, so she says, take my concubine and have babies with her. And then Leah gets jealous and says, take my concubine and have babies with her. 
So the family of Israel is one dad, four moms, 12 brothers who all hate each other and sell Joseph to the Egyptians. <laughs> right? It's just like the Kilkali family. <laughs> right? It's like a lot of our families. Right? It's like a lot of our families, but it's still a family, right? It's still a family. It's still a family, and it's still part of the history of love. Because then Jesus enters into that family, right? Jesus entered into that distorted family of the Old Testament. And sometimes we forget that, right? We forget that. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, it says that long genealogy, Right? Long genealogy, starting with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob. We hear it every Christmas when you're trying to get mass out of the way and you go to Christmas Eve. But who does that genealogy name off? It names off Tamar, who like, seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant by him so that he would finally take care of her. It lists Rahab, the prostitute, who helped the Israelites take Jericho. It lists Ruth, not a member of the people of God. She's not supposed to be invited into that family. And Bathsheba who it doesn't even name, it just says the wife of Uriah, right? who David seduced and then had her husband killed. And then at the end of that long list of people, it says, then was born Jesus. And so if Jesus can be born into that family, then he can be born into my family. He can be born into your families. And he can redeem them, right? That's the gospel message. So many times in the church, when we preach on the family, we always preach on, be like the holy family, and all the moms in the pews just start going, I wasn't conceived without sin. <laughs> and then they come up afterwards and they're just like, Father, that was good, but my husband is not St. Joseph. <laughs> my husband was St. Joseph, we'd be good. <laughs> right? We forget that our Lord entered into this whole family. Right? That's the story of salvation. And he did that so that he could bring clarity. We can grow in virtue and eventually get to the kingdom of heaven or the wedding feast of the Lamb. Right? That's the story of Scripture. That's the story of salvation. The story of salvation is not things were messed up and people became perfect and Jesus decided to love them. It's not the story of salvation. The story of salvation is also not like, life's just supposed to stink, and then you die, and then things become good. That's the gospel of the suck. I'll tell you about that in a second. Right? The story of salvation is our story. This is my autobiography, right? I was born into a family. Everything was good. Then something happened. My mom died when I was two. My dad was an alcoholic, and he was kind of absent in the home. I got exposed to pornography when I was 10. My friend, I had people in high school thought I was gay and they spread rumors that I was gay. All those things caused a distortion about who I am, about who God is, about relationships. But then Jesus entered into my life in order to change everything. Right? It's all of our story. It's all of our story. You know, and that's the important story to tell. But in order to tell it, we have to kind of understand it a little bit deeper. So John Paul II goes into more depth. And he talks about how when we were created in Genesis 1.27, it says, Let us create man in our image after our likeness. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And being created in the image of God means we're created in the image of God, who is three persons, who are a communion of life and love from all eternity. Right? 
but we should reflect on that a little bit more because Pope Benedict thinks it's really important that we're created in the image of the Trinity. And in the Trinity, there are three kinds of love. Right? And these three kinds of love are really important. And they're not the normal distinctions. Like we'll talk about eros, agape, storge. It's not those kind of Greek distinctions. The distinctions that he makes are like this kind of love, which is called fatherhood. Fatherhood is defined as I want the good for you. Right? That's the love that is a gift. That's the love that is sacrifice. When we say love is sacrifice, it's fatherhood that is sacrifice. Right? All of you who are parents know love is sacrifice. Like you don't expect your kids to reciprocate or to take care of your emotional needs or anything like that. Like you just get up at three in the morning and you feed them. Right? You want the good for them. When I go visit, I have some great friends, and I'll go to their house, and their mom, like, love is, I want the good for you, because this mom will say, oh, Father, glad you're here. You should have called first. Um, <laughs> have a seat. We're having dinner, and she'll, like, put food down, and everybody's eating, and then she just kind of sits at the bar and eats potato chips. <laughs> Aren't you going to eat? Oh, no, I'm good. I'm just happy seeing all of you fed. Right? Like, that's, I want the good for you. Your needs are more important than my needs. Then there's this kind of love, right? which is the love of a son for a father. We'll call it sonship. Sonship does not want the good for the father, because it can't. St. Thomas says, the difference between the father and the son is an even greater difference than the difference between God and man. So if fatherhood says, I give to you, <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> if fatherhood says, I give to you, the son doesn't give back. He just receives. Another word I'm going to use is entrusts himself completely. That's not a word that we use. We don't use that very often in our common language. Like, I entrust myself to you. We don't really say. We say, I've been entrusted to be in charge of the family life office. Or when I'm teaching, I'll say to somebody, like, I entrust you to hang on to my pen. <laughs> and how well do I have to know you? I don't, it's like a dollar, <laughs> right? And then I entrust you to hang on to my car keys. I have to know you a little bit better. <laughs> but I entrust my life to you means I could turn off my brain and let you make all my decisions for the rest of the day. And I know that my life's going to be better at the end of the day than it was at the beginning. Right? How many people can we say that about? You know, when you all got married, you took each other's hands in your hands and you said, I take you as my husband, I take you as my wife. You really said, I entrust myself to you. I could turn off my brain and let you make all my decisions for the rest of the day. And I know my life would be better for it. When I was ordained, I knelt down in front of Bishop Bruskowitz. I put my hands in his hands. And he said, do you promise respect and obedience to me and my successors? And I said, I do. I entrust my life to you. I think. <laughs> right? Because if I'm honest, like that is the most difficult thing that any of us does is entrust ourselves to another person. Pope Francis defines the act of faith in Lumen Fide as entrusting yourself completely to Christ. But if I'm honest, like there was times in my priesthood where I woke up in the morning and I was like, what did I do? What am I doing here? You know, when I went to the bishop and I asked to go to Rome or asked to go to the army, and they sent me to Rome, and I went over there, and I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. But after about a year and a half, 
I'm sitting in class for the second time in my life when all my West Point classmates are fighting a war and I'm sitting there learning about stuff that's agitating me. I don't even like it. Like I'm learning about sonship and Trinitarian love and it was just agitating all my wounds. Um, and I would think to myself, like I should be in Afghanistan right now. And then I would go to bed and I would think about what would my life be like if I was a chaplain in Afghanistan? And it's a dangerous drift because then I would start thinking about what would my life be like if I had never gone to the priesthood? I would be like a lieutenant colonel. That's what I'd be doing. And then I'm like, what would my life be like if I married my high school girlfriend? I'd have like a 15-year-old child. You know, it's like this drift. And that drift is an indication that I had not entrusted my life. You know, and when I think back on my discernment, um, I really never did make the act of faith, I don't think. You know, I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. And that's how I said it. My spiritual director, I remember him asking me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do whatever God wants me to do. And he said, oh, good, you're so holy. I wasn't really holy. I was looking for a holy loophole. Because if I only want to do the abstract thing that God wants for me, then that kind of leaves it open for 10 years later. I could say, well, maybe God didn't really want this for me. Maybe he wanted me to do something else. And I want to do what God wants me to do. I just misinterpreted, and so now I'm going to go do something else. I was out running by St. Peter's one day, and I looked up at St. Peter's, and I said for the first time in my life, after I'd already been ordained for seven years, I want to be a priest. It's the first time I ever said it. I'd always just said, I think God wants me to be a priest. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I'll do it because nobody else will do it. I want to do whatever God wants. But I never said I want to be a priest until I'd already been ordained for seven years. And it was from that point forward that our Lord started changing my heart in amazing ways. You know, the act of faith means I want the very thing that God wants for me. I want the very thing that God wants for me. You know, and you all know this. Like, you all have gone through similar things, I'm sure. Right? Like, I'm sure a lot of you practice NFP, and I'm sure some of you had an NFP surprise baby. Right? You do the birth control test, and you're like throwing it at your husband. What the heck? (laughs) And then eventually you decide, I want to be a mom. You go from, oh crap, to, I want to be a mom. Or I want to be a dad. Nobody's really laughing because you're all like (laughs) examining your hearts. How did he know? No. Because we grow into that act of faith, right? We grow into that act of faith. And the Holy Spirit is this bond of love between them or the fruitfulness of the love between the Father and the Son. It becomes his own person. Now, Pope Benedict says the Father is a being for the Son. The Son is a being from the Father. And the Holy Spirit is a being with the Father and the Son. These are the three kinds of love. To be from another, to be with another, to be for another. So when he talks about creation in the image of God, Pope Benedict says, The real God is by his very nature entirely being for, being from, and being with. Man, for his part, is God's image precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. Whenever we attempt to free ourselves from this pattern, we are not on our way to divinity, but to dehumanization. 
to the destruction of being itself through the destruction of the truth. So being created in the image of God means we love in three ways, right? We love as a son or a daughter, as a husband, wife, as a mother, father, and it goes in that order, right? It goes in that order. When we get out of that order, that's when things start to go wrong, right? What are people who believe in gay marriage? What do they believe? Identity is the being with relationship. I find meaning in my life based on who I'm with. What does it mean to be a Christian? Your identity is the being from relationship. I'm a Christian because I'm in relationship with our Lord. And we learn that in the family. When I was in Rome, Pope Benedict said this in a talk he gave to us. He said, the family is the place where the theology of the body and the theology of love intersect. Here we learn the goodness of the body It's witness to an origin that is good in the experience of love we receive from our parents. So here we learn to be a child. Here the gift of self in one flesh is lived out in the conjugal charity that joins the spouses, the love of a husband and a wife. Here the fecundity of love is experienced in our life and our life is interwoven with that of other generations. It is the family, in the family, that man discovers his relationality, not as a self-actualized autonomous individual, but as a child, a spouse, a parent, whose identity is founded on being called to love, to receive himself from others, and to give himself to others. In a world that doesn't know what identity means, this quote is super important. It's really important. It also explains why so many people who have ruptured family lives are so confused. Because it is in the family that we learn who we are. And the family, that pattern of being a child, spouse, parent, that's the way it's narrated in Scripture. When God creates Adam in Genesis chapter 2, Adam is just created by himself, right? And he learns that he's in relationship with God. God says, don't eat that fruit or you'll die. That means I want the good for you. I don't want you to die. Adam believes God. He trusts God. He entrusts himself to God and everything's good. He's just walking around the garden. And he sees things in the world and he starts to learn who he is because he sees this thing on the ground. He picks it up. He's like, huh, this is made out of material. So am I. But it can't move around or do anything. So I guess I'm not like the rock. I'm like God. Then he sees this other thing and he's like, this thing can grow and it seems to be alive. But it can't move around and it can't really make noise. So I guess I'm not like the tree. I'm like God. He learns that he's like God. And he starts to develop this longing in his heart to find something else in the world that's also like him, right? that's also like God. And so God says, it's not good that the man be alone. I'll make him a suitable helpmate, right? Because he can't love as a husband or a father yet, only as a son. And so then he's walking around and he sees this creature that can walk around like he can walk around. And he starts to get excited and this longing in his heart starts to grow. This creature starts moving towards him, has beautiful eyes. It's really soft, jumps up on him and starts licking his face, and he's like, oh, it's just a dog. And he names the creature and he moves on. So he had this anticipation and then let down when it was just a dog. And then God brought him a giraffe, same thing. And then he brought him a platypus, and he didn't really know what to think. And he names all of these creatures, and the longing in his heart starts to grow, And so God casts a deep sleep on him, and when he wakes from that sleep, he sees this creature whose body is like his body, but not like his body. 
And when he looks into her eyes, he can see that she knows the same God that he knows. That she's a daughter of the same father. So John Paul II says he knows her as sister before he knows her as bride. And he says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of her man she has come. He has the at last moment, right? The at last moment. It's like that moment when he realized this is the person that I can make a gift of myself to, that I can love the way that God loves me, right? That whole narrative is just like dating and marriage, right? It's just like dating and marriage. Right? When you were young women, you once saw a guy and you were like, he's so sporty, he's really funny, he's really muscular, he's muy guapo. And you thought maybe he's the one, and then you went out to coffee. And you were like, no, it's just a doc. <laughs> Turn, look your face. <laughs> so there's this anticipation and letdown, right? And there might have been a lot of dogs before eventually you had the at last moment, right? All of you who are married, you had the at last moment. That moment you realized, this is the person I'm going to marry. And it might have been two different moments, you know, when you compare notes. <laughs> But that's a great story. Like, everybody should tell your kids your outlast moment story. You should tell your kids your outlast moment story. Like, how did you know you fell in love? Why? Because they love love stories, right? They love love stories. And you have the best love story ever. Because somewhere in your love story, there's something weird happened. Like, tell me your outlast moment story. Well, we were on a double blind date, and your dad was just more interesting than your Uncle Harold. <laughs> So I ended up with him. And your kids will say, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. <laughs> right? Somewhere somebody missed the bus. They did something. There was something that brought you two together. Right? And that's the story of your kids' lives. It's the story of their beginnings. You know? And they should know that story. Because it's beautiful. And when they have that atlas moment, now see the love of the family. It kind of looks like the love of the Trinity. Adam is able to love her with the same love he received from God. God wants the good for him. Now he wants the good for her. God wants the good for her. She wants the good for him. She also entrusts her life to him. In human relationships, the man also entrusts himself to the woman. And when that happens in the most complete, full, and profound way, a third person comes forth. And everything's good. Right? That's what Jesus means by the beginning. Right? That we were created first to be children of God, then to be spouses so that we could become parents. But the evil one has a plan for your family. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I pray that your own faith may not fail, and once you have turned back, you must strengthen your brethren. The devil wants to sift you all like wheat. Right? And I love this scripture because it just reminds me of a table, and there's a family, and they're sitting around the table. They're playing pitch. They're talking. They're sharing their day. They're sharing their lives with each other. It's great. And then the sifter comes underneath and the devil starts cranking the sifter and everybody comes out the bottom like staring at their iPhones. Right? That's what our families look like a lot of times. Now I was the first one of my priest friends to get a smartphone in 2007 and I remember going to dinner and uh, I was checking my email during dinner. My friends were like, Kokali, put your phone up. What the heck's the matter with you? We're all here. Just talk to us. Your email's not that important. You're not that important. 
about six months ago, I was at lunch with a bunch of my friends. Halfway through lunch, we're all on our phones looking at nothing important. Right? It's just stupid. We miss out on each other. We're missing out on relationships. Okay? Not even doing bad things. It's just stupid. Because there's a really good sale on Amazon. <laughs> you know, and technology has done this to us. You know, and this is important for us to remember and to recall, especially when you have kids and you're trying to like communicate this to your kids, right? Because some of us, when we grew up, we communicated with this technology, right? Like party line phone, one phone number, four households, right? No privacy, no anonymity, nobody gets in trouble. Right? Mrs. McGillicuddy calls your mom and dad and talks about your conversation you had with your boyfriend. That's what happened right? back in those days. So then we got more technologically advanced and we put a phone in the kitchen on a short cord. Right? There was a short cord on the phone in the kitchen. So when I was in junior high, if a girl called me on a Saturday morning at 10, mom would start prepping dinner. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm prepping dinner. <laughs> Was she spying on me? No, she wasn't spying on me. She just wanted to make sure I wasn't getting in trouble. She just wanted to know what was going on in my world. And there was no privacy, so we got a really long cord and went to the pantry and talked on the phone. Right? And then we got cordless phones. The biggest scandal in the 1990s. What was the biggest scandal? Are you going to let your kid have a teen line? This was the biggest scandal. Right? Moms were calling each other all over the country. Are you going to let your kid have a teen line? If you let them have a teen line, we won't know who they're talking to. They'll be, they'll be too private. We won't know what they're up to. We won't know who's calling our house. Like, this was a real worry of parents back then. You know, and then we got email, instant messaging, cell phones, so every kid now has their own phone numbers. Nobody knows what anybody's doing anymore. And there's more anonymity, which means more privacy. And now social media and Snapchat is the most popular way kids communicate right now. Right? Which is an app that sends a message with a picture that self-destructs in 10 seconds. Right? There is no reason to have Snapchat. There's no reason for it. Unless your kid works for the CIA, they don't need to send messages to self-destruct. <laughs> right? and, the, and it's important to remember that because kids will be like, well, it's just fun and we don't use it for bad reasons. We just sit around and take goofy pictures and send them to each other. But the app developers for Snapchat, they were not sitting around a table saying, hmm, we need to make an app so that 12-year-olds can stick their tongues out and take pictures and send goofy messages to each other. Right? That's not why they designed the app. They designed the app to send naked pictures. That's why it exists. And uh, It just makes me feel gross. We shouldn't support it. And kids get in trouble on it, just in case you don't know that. <laughs> right? So the devil wants to sift all of you like wheat. We can see how that happens. You know? And it happened in the beginning in a similar way. Like... What happens in original sin? The devil comes along and he says, God doesn't really want the good for you. Temptation is always about casting doubt on the fact that God wants the good. He says, if you eat that fruit, you will not die. You'll be like God. God lied to you. He wants to keep you down. And so if I doubt God wants the good for me, if Adam and Eve doubt God wants the good for them, then they cannot entrust their lives to him. And so they declare their autonomy and they lose their status as sons and daughters. Right? The spirit is evicted from their heart. The first rupture that happens is the rupture between God and man. It's important because then that rupture between God and man bleeds into the next level of love. Right? It starts with a rupture of son-daughter, then to husband-wife. Because if God's not trustworthy, neither is this woman. But she might be able to fill up what's missing in my life. 
If God's not trustworthy, neither is this man, but maybe he can fill up what's missing in my life. And that relationship becomes ruptured. When we talk about things like chastity, marriage, healthy marriages, sometimes marriages are just a little bit distorted. But the answer is usually about, like, I need to be a better daughter, I need to be a better son. I need to learn that I'm lovable. In the order of sin, then, that then extends to parenthood. And so what happens when that relationship becomes ruptured most of the time Each parent isolates the child and then depends on the child to fill their emotional needs. That's what happens in the scripture. You have Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau. Who does Rebecca love best? Jacob. Right? Go dress up like your brother and lie to your father. Betray him so that you'll get the blessing because I love you best. So I want you to love me by betraying your dad. Yay, that sounds like a great family. (laughs) Daughter of Herodias, she had a mom and a dad who loved each other, I'm assuming at one point. Then her mom leaves her dad, marries her dad's brother. She has to move in with Uncle Herod, who makes her dress up and dance provocatively in front of all of his friends. And then she doesn't have any identity. He says, I'll give you anything. And she says, uh, Mom, what do I want? She can't even like, have her own voice. Right, because that distortion goes in that way. And this happens in our natural life, in our natural families. Like, I could tell you the day that this happened in my life. Like, I was four, and I asked my dad, can we go fishing? And he said, when you're older. Okay, dad promised we're going to go when I'm older. Got it. I got to be seven, I went to my dad, and I said, am I older? And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, you said we go fishing when I'm older. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go. So... Um, I started imagining fishing. What's it going to look like? We're going to go to a lake, hang out all day, just me and my dad. On a Saturday. So it was like Thursday. Dad came home from work. We got in the car. He said, you're going fishing. We went to the drive towards the lake, and then we ended up at this fishing farm where they had these wells, and they starved the fish at the bottom of the wells. We dropped in our fishing line. We pulled out a fish. We were home in 45 minutes, fishing with my dad. So what did I learn? If dad makes a promise, i got to drop my expectations about three levels. And i got to take care of myself. And I developed the gospel of the suck. Right? Which basically means if God says I want good things for you, eh, he probably just wants okay things for me. I remember my sister thought she was getting a computer for Christmas, and I took her aside, and I was trying to protect her, and I was like, you're probably getting a typewriter. because that was just how we kind of operated right like a lot of people operate that way a lot of us operate that way like we say you're supposed to have joy and people will say well yeah in heaven right no you're actually supposed to have joy now now you're supposed to have joy and we have to be stubborn about having joy and we have to be stubborn about having joy and those loss of sonship, it just kind of bleeds into every other relationship. That's what happens. But the good news is, right, because oh, there's all this distortion, but then the good news is what? That Christ entered into the world in order to restore us as sons and daughters. Right? So the cross is the proof that God wants the good for us. So when we say you should love like Jesus, it's a reminder that Jesus restored love. Right? But what do we see when we see the cross? 
Because for a lot of us, when we see the cross, we just see all of my own sins. Like on Good Friday, when we go up and venerate the cross, we're like, I'm sorry I hurt you so much. And it's true, because my sins did hurt Jesus. But sometimes we get that so stuck in our head that it becomes bad for us, right? And why do we believe that? Because probably when we were in second grade, we had Sister Margaret Mary of the disgruntled heart of Jesus <laughs> as our teacher. And we were bad in class, and so she like marched us into chapel, and she made us kneel down on glass and look up the crucifix. And she said, every time you're bad in class, you drive another nail into Jesus' hands. And it's true. But there's another truth, right? The other truth is that every time anybody has ever sinned from the beginning of time to the end of time, it hurt Jesus. And if that's true, it means anytime anybody has ever sinned against me, it hurt Jesus. And that Jesus suffered the consequence of all sin. And so that means that he suffered the consequence of the sins also committed against me. So when I felt rejected, like I wasn't good enough, like my dad would never choose me to actually be with him, Jesus felt all those things because they're the consequence of sin when he went to the cross. If somebody was abused and they feel like I have no value other than my body, I'm never really going to be worthy of being loved by anybody. I'm always going to be alone. Jesus felt all those things because they're the consequence of sin. Which means he knows you better than anybody knows you. And he can love you more than anybody loves you. And when he gave his life on the cross, he gave his life to heal you. To restore you. And if that's true, then that means he is trustworthy and I can make that act of faith and entrust my life to him. You know, that's how St. Paul proclaimed the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nowhere in scripture does he say, every time you sin, you re-crucify Jesus. While, you were yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And these are really important things to remember because I have once met with a 12-year-old kid who had been looking at pornography and his dad brought him in to see me. And I sat down with this kid and I said, how old were you the first time you saw pornography? He said, I was in fourth grade. Okay, what did you see? Tell me about it. Where were you? I was in my room. Okay, so I want you to imagine Jesus comes into the room. What does he do? The day you were looking at pornography for the first time. He goes... Oh, he was just like really upset with me. And he was like, you're just hurting yourself and you shouldn't be doing that. And he looked at me and he said, it's just like I'm taking those nails and driving them into his hands. Like you were 10 or 11 or 12. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for them if a millstone were put around their neck and they'd be thrown into the sea. Jesus would come into the room and he'd be mad, but he'd be mad at your computer. He'd probably flip it over like he was cleansing the temple. And then he would just kneel down in front of you and pull your head into his shoulder and he would say to you, I'm sorry this happened to you. This shouldn't have happened to you. I will always love you. I will never abandon you. This shouldn't have happened to you. I will always love you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you over and over and over and over until you start to believe it. And then I just watched this kid as these tears started welling up in his eyes. And he started to realize that he was loved. 
you know, that distortion just enters into our life ever so slightly. And then it becomes an obstacle to joy. You know, like I had those distortions in my life. Like I've had like five conversions this year because Jesus keeps showing me like this is where this distortion was. There's another one. Here's another one. And like the most profound place that I learned this was when I was in Rome. And um, can I, I kind of told you like I had to say like I want to be a priest. But uh, it wasn't, that wasn't the end of the story. Like I want to be a priest, but then I still went back to my room and I got depressed and um, my dad had died like three years later and I never really dealt with that and it was just stirring up all kinds of stuff. Then I'm learning about like marriage and family and it's making me think about my own distorted, dysfunctional family. And I started zoning out watching a lot of TV because I discovered internet TV on like third-party streaming websites. And so I started watching seasons of TV at a time. Like I didn't watch a show, I watched a season. I watched like eight seasons of One Tree Hill in three weeks. <laughs> it's not even a good show. And I'd wake up. I'd like wake up in the morning. In the morning, I'd wake up and I'd be worried about the character on the show. Like they were a real person. I went weeks without talking to people. Um, like I was really depressed. And I wasn't getting my work done. And I was just like, God's going to heal me. Like God will fix it. Like he'll fix it. He'll fix it. Something will happen. Something, maybe I just need to go home on a break. I delayed getting my thesis done because I was writing on suffering, of all things, right? So that's not helping. Um, and eventually I had to ask the bishop to go to therapy. And, uh, and that's like committing clerical suicide sometimes, right? Like, bishop, I have to go to therapy. Because a lot of times when you're a priest, you know you're not allowed to have problems when you're a priest sometimes, right? <laughs> bishop, I need to go to therapy. Like, his father's on sabbatical. And then he comes back and gets banished to some corner of the diocese, right? That happens sometimes. But I had a choice. My choice was either I can just stuff all these emotions that I don't understand, power through my work, and kind of be like a miserable gospel of the suck priest. Or I could take a risk at having joy. And so I took a risk at having joy. And when I asked him that, then things started to open up. And, um, and one of the most profound things that opened up was... I was in chapel, and I was praying over Mary and John at the foot of the cross. And it's this scene where Jesus says to John, behold your mother. And I got stuck there for, like, weeks. And it was like, behold your mother, behold your mother, behold your mother. And I had often given homilies on the fact that I didn't know my mother. Like, I always would wonder what it would be like to have a mother. And so I'm praying about this. And then one day it was like, behold your mother. And I had all this emotions, like this movement, like this warm kind of butterfly feeling. I didn't really understand it. And that emotion was linked to a memory of me being about 10 years old. I'm sitting downstairs. I'm watching TV. This lady comes over to sell Mary Kay cosmetics to my mom. And I can hear her voice upstairs, this scratchy Michigan voice. And when I heard her voice, my heart started moving. And I had no idea why. And I went upstairs after she left, and I went to my mom. And I said, am I supposed to know that lady? And my stepmom said, she kind of looked startled and confused. And she was like, no. I said, I feel like I'm supposed to know her. She's like, I don't know. And for whatever reason, that's, what, that was, that's the way she answered that day. So in my prayer, I'm remembering that. And then I remembered, like, 20 other conversations that took place over the course of my life and this like puzzle pieces started to fall into place. And it turns out that um, when my mom was sick, like she had cancer while I was in utero. She had cervical <coughs> cancer while I was in utero. And so 
Um, so there were all these stories about how her appendix grew up and it blocked the cancer from invading her womb and things like that. Um, but then I was born and then they tried to treat it, but they couldn't treat it. So that means she was going to cancer treatment from the time I was born, which means like somebody had to take care of me. And it turns out that the priest at the parish called this family, which was a young couple. They had four teenage daughters and they would come over and bring us food and they would clean the house and they would babysit sometimes. Um, eventually like mom was in bed sick dad would leave me strapped in the high chair and go to work and then they would come over I'd be strapped in the high chair because it was the 70s you could do that (laughs) (laughs) and she'd pick me up and carry me around and we'd do chores or go to the store or whatever it was and then when my mom went into the hospital I went to live with this family and uh, I got potty trained there it's where like they took me off the bottle I actually learned to say my prayers there. And, um, and then when my dad remarried, I went to live with my dad and my stepmom. And the lady, the Mary Kay lady, like she was that lady from that family. And so then I really was like, I need to go to therapy. <laughs> and so I ended up going to the religious, the Sisters of Mercy in Alma, Michigan. And this is about two hours away from the town I grew up in which is also where this couple lived. Because I had to find them. I was like on Facebook looking up their kids. I found them on my birthday because God does things for me on like weird, like on my birthday, I found them. And, um, and the daughter of Mary's daughter, her name is Mary Kay, I wrote her this email like, I don't know if you remember me. And she writes back, how could we ever forget the little boy that God sent into our lives? Aww. And in about five emails, they told me more stories about my interactions with my real mom than anybody had told me in 37 years of my life. Like every time, when your mom was in the hospital, she would call every day and we'd put the phone up to your ear so you could hear her voice. I never knew that happened. Every day at one o'clock was your time to crawl into your mom's bed and you'd like, whatever, spend time with her. I never knew that happened. It wasn't the same narrative that I got growing up. And, uh, and so when I went to therapy, I was able to go visit these people. And, um, and I go visit them. And remember, like, I was really depressed and, like, really didn't know what it meant to be loved anymore. Um, I show up at their house. I ring the doorbell. Fred answers the door, the husband. And he's just like, hey, Sean, come on in. Like, no big deal. Like, I just showed up. Mary comes in, we're talking for a while, and she says, um, hang on a second, got to get something. And she goes away, and she comes back with this freezer bag. <coughs> and inside the freezer bag, she has, um, like, the parish directory from when I was a kid. With, like, the picture of me and my mom and dad. She has all the birthday cards from my second birthday party. She had the poem the hospital chaplain wrote about my parents as my mom was dying in the hospital. And all the newspaper clippings from when I was in high school. And this red piece of construction paper that says, like, in crayon, to Mary Mom, from Sean, and you open it up, and it says, I love you in big letters. And she carried all that stuff around for 35 years. Seven times they moved, a couple times out of state, just so she could give it to this 37-year-old priest who forgot what it meant to be loved as a son. And it changed everything. That was the first time in my life that I can remember where I actually knew what it meant to be loved unconditionally. Right? To be a son. That people are trustworthy. That even when they're not in my purview, they still can be thinking about me. 
and that changed also the way that I understood God in my life because I had to realize that our Lord did all that and our Lord orchestrated all of that so that he could teach me what it means to love again. And ever since then, my prayer is different. My prayer is like, now my prayer is like, our Lord is kind of like out there and he's calling me to follow him and I'm just trying to like run as fast as I can to catch up with him. And there's a security in my prayer life that I've never known before and a joy that I've never known before, right? But it only happened because I made this resolution to be stubborn about having joy, right? To be stubborn about having joy. And that's what we all, like, need to be in the modern world is stubborn about having joy, stubborn about being saints, stubborn about having families that are actually schools of love so that we can be a light in the darkness and so that we can be evangelists of love in a world that really has forgotten what it means to love and to be loved. So that's my challenge for all of you, to be stubborn about having joy and loving greatly. And, uh, and I'll just close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessings upon all gathered here and upon all their families. We ask you to heal whatever wounds in our hearts impede us from experiencing you. To remove all obstacles to your grace, to your love, and to your mercy. And to help us to walk as children of the light. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Sorry.